An arborist is someone who specializes in the cultivation, care, and maintenance of trees. Uh, Some of you in this very room may be arborists. Probably not many of you, uh, but if you are, this sermon text might actually make more sense to you at first reading because you understand some of the principles at play here. The Apostle Paul is explaining, of course, that relationship between Israel and the Gentiles within Christ's church, his one people of God. And he uses this illustration that probably would have landed better in its original audience than it does for us. Again, unless you are a trained arborist, you can only uh, really fully understand the intention of this clearly if you have a bit of knowledge about cultivating trees. Did you know that there is such a thing as a fruit cocktail tree, or sometimes called a fruit salad tree? It is a single tree that bears different varieties of fruits. Uh, And so you can have an apple tree that would grow both red and green apples. You could have a citrus tree that grows both oranges and lemons and limes. Or you could have a stone fruit tree that could grow peaches and plums. And when we look at a tree like this, it it stands out to us because that's contrary to nature. Uh, Trees do not grow like that by themselves. And so when you see that, you're kind of challenged by it. What's happening there? That's a little bit confusing. We're not used to seeing different kinds of fruit on a single tree. It's contrary to how nature works by itself. So how does something like this happen if it's not by nature? Well, in in this instance, in the case of this tree, an arborist would take the the branches off of a an orange tree, a lime tree, a lemon tree, and then graft them in to the trunk of one tree. So each of the different branches is bearing a different variety of a particular kind of fruit. Grafting has been a practice that has happened since ancient times. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, It's an ancient practice that joins together tissues from two different plants. You can see what the process looks like here. You make a cutting in the stump of the tree, and then you cut off a branch from a different tree, and then you join them together, and bind them together, tie them together. And if it's successful, those two plants coexist. Uh, Those two plants grow together. It's supported by the one system of roots. You can see one behind me there. Sometimes it's called a hybrid tree, where you have these different branches that that are grafted into this one one tree. A combination of two trees grafted together in one. Now this works in a lot of different ways. It's not just with citrus trees or fruit trees. It could also be with with grape vines or coffee plants, all sorts of plants. But Paul points to an olive tree in today's text, and he uses that as a visual aid to help us understand what God is doing with Israel and the Gentile nations. So let's keep this, this visual concept in mind as we try to dig into this text this morning. Let's keep this visual of grafting at front of mind. I submit that the big idea of this passage is this morning. God surprisingly creates a humble, united people. God surprisingly creates a humble, united people. And we've broken it down into two main points. First, God's amazing grace subverts our expectations verses 11 through 16. And then second, God cultivates his people according to his good pleasure from verses 17 through 24. 
Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we are humbled. We are grateful for the fact that you have spoken so clearly to us in your word. And Father, even that you would see fit to use illustrations that would help us to understand the difficult concepts here that are present. We trust that you have something for us here in this word this morning. Help us to be encouraged by this. Help us to be challenged where we need to be. Help us to uh, encourage one another in the faith and help us to exalt our Savior. We'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, God's amazing grace, surprising grace, subverts our expectation. God's amazing grace subverts our expectations. Verses 11 through 15. The title of this sermon series that we started actually last fall going through, slowly going through the book of Romans, is gospel unity propels mission. Gospel unity propels mission. And the reason that we settled on that title of the sermon series is because it kind of encapsulates the themes that are recurring throughout the book from beginning to end. Unity is one very consistent theme throughout the book of Romans. For example, everyone equally shares in the problem of sin, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. As fallen children of Adam, we all sit together under the wrath of a righteous God. But God sent his one and only Son for us to reconcile us back to him through his sacrificial death and powerful resurrection. That's the gospel, that's the power of God for salvation, both to the Jew and to the Greek which is to say for everyone. There is one gospel for everybody, Jew or Greek, American or Chinese. And so we are either condemned in Adam or we are saved in Christ. Those are the options. And so for individual Christians who have been saved, united by faith with Christ, we are saved into a people. We're not just saved individually alone. We are saved into a body of believers, the church. So they're the only gods, one gospel creates one people. There's unity across this message, across this letter. And the grace that God has shown to us in his gospel is supposed to influence and inform the way that we treat each other inside of this one church. We are to be gracious we are to forgive one another in the way that we have been shown grace and forgiveness by God. Now look, the reality is that's a lot easier to say than it is to live. I think we would all be willing to acknowledge that. It's one thing to talk about how Christ's one holy universal church is true in a hypothetical uh, a way that just sort of, it's an idea in your mind, but it's not actually tangible. It's difficult to actually live this out. It's one thing to live with this idea of the unity of the church in our minds. It's another thing to live with one another and have to show grace and forgiveness to actual people who are actually annoying and sinful. It's not just a concept and it lives in our heads. God's church is made up of redeemed sinners who struggle with the flesh. The church is messy. And as we await the redemption of our bodies, we are all at war with our sinful flesh. Our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance. 
And we find creative ways to try and undo the unity that God has created in his word through his spirit. And I say this to our shame. But we each have different experiences. We each have different expectations. And this is just a virtue of the fact that we all come from different backgrounds. We have different cultures. We have different histories. We have different expectations that are sort of based on that. And those differences could potentially be a source of tension for us, a way that we might be able to divide between one another, draw up camps, tribalism. But check this out. The differences that God has created us with are intentional. God intentionally made us different in order to show the vast variety of his grace that he could stitch together people who wouldn't ordinarily belong together. Our differences are meant to be part of the glory of our church, not to be a cause of self-centeredness or pride or arrogance. So, how do people with differences live together in light of those intentional created differences? In one word, humility. Just think about the situation in the church in Rome that Paul wrote this letter into. There were different kinds of ethnicities in the Roman church. You have Jewish Christians, and you have Gentile Christians. Jews, of course, are those people who have descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that we read about in the Old Testament. And then Gentiles are anyone who's not a Jew, any nation that's not Israel. And we know from ancient historians that in the year 49 AD, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Uh, They had to get kicked out. The Jews were not allowed to stay in Rome. They all had to leave. But then five years later, Claudius dies, and so the Jews begin to return back into Rome. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church in Rome with that as the cultural background there. They've been expelled, and now they're slowly trickling back in. You can imagine how the Jews who had been trickling back into the church would be on the outskirts of the church a little bit. They would have felt like they were out on the margins. The Roman church that they returned to would have been very different from the one that they had left five years previously. Uh, For one thing, of course, all the leaders of the church would now have been Gentiles, because that's all that was left within the church for that period of five years. And so when the Jews returned back into this church in Rome, there would have been some conflict. There would have been some tension between these two ethnic groups. Maybe the Gentile Christians started to think God rejected the Jews and he's replaced them with us. Maybe that's why they got kicked out of Rome. Maybe the Gentiles thought that they were superior to the Jewish Christians. Well, this is the background that Paul is speaking into. So he takes some time to explain God's surprising plan for salvation for all the nations of the world through Christ and through his church. A, point one, point A, verses 11 through 12, God intended to save Gentile rebels through Jewish rebellion. Let me just read 11 and 12 for us again. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Israel's rejection of the gospel was the way that God designed for Gentiles to be grafted into God's people. It's part of God's surprising plan. 
We know from having read from Romans 9 through 11 that Israel stumbled over the gospel. They did not accept Jesus Christ. They should have recognized him as their promised Messiah, but they were so focused on establishing their own personal righteousness that they missed out on God's righteousness that he offers as a free gift to them. Paul asks the question here in verse 11, this is how I read it, was the purpose of their stumbling that they would fall away from the people of God? Was that, was that God's intention in their hardening, in their stumbling? Is that the final goal of what happens with Israel and their hardening? And, and then Paul responds to that, of course, with his very strong response that he's used a number of times, absolutely not. That is not God's intention. The point, however, of Israel's stumbling over the gospel was for the gospel to come to the Gentiles. That's the ultimate goal. And we see this play out, actually, in the narratives of the book of Acts. So if you look at Acts 13, verses 44 through 49, I'll just read those for us. Acts 13, 44 to 49. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. So Paul's out there speaking the gospel. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, quote, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So this is the concept that Paul is teaching in Romans 11, playing out in real time in the book of Acts as the church is being established and expanding. So Israel's rejection of the gospel thrusts Paul out into the nation as a missionary to the Gentiles. So in this sense, then, it seems that the final goal of Israel's rejection of the gospel wasn't that they would fall away. The goal was what the Gentiles would be brought into God's people. Commentator Douglas Moo puts this really well. He says this, quote, Israel's repudiation of the blessings naturally belonging to her has caused them to be diverted into another wider channel in which they are now flowing to the whole world. I think that sums up the concept really well. Look at verse 12 here. Paul says the same thing in verse 12 in two different ways. He talks about Israel's trespass and Israel's failure, the rejection of the gospel. And he talks about how that leads to riches for the world and for Gentiles. So notice this is the same phrase. He's using it twice, parallel ways. So please note here, that world is another way to say Gentiles. Make note of that. The world is the nations outside of Israel. Now, what do you make of this concept, though, of the Jews being made jealous by the faith of the Gentiles? Maybe you've seen this play out in some small way. If you have siblings that are close in age to you, or if you have children that are close to your age, there could be a toy that is stuffed off into the corner of a child's room uh, that they have completely forgotten that they even own and would not have missed otherwise. But then another kid comes into the room and searches around and finds it, 
I was like, oh, this is, this is amazing. I love this. This is so great. And then what, of course, is the response of that child who owns the toy? That's mine. You cannot have it. I finally found it. I've been looking so hard for that. My long-lost item. Thank you so much for finding it for me. No, of course you can't play with it. That's mine all along. It does not belong to you. And there's no way that I could ever part with that dear, beloved object. Well, of course, Israel would have had their own reasons to return to their faith now that they saw the Gentiles enjoying what really rightly belonged to them. But I was struck in meditating on this. Would my faith make anyone else jealous? Perhaps it's a question you could ask yourself. Would Christ's work in your life make anyone else jealous? Do I live in such a way that Christ's claim to bring an abundant life draws others in, in a way that is attractive to others. I certainly don't mean to live in a way that is perfect and photogenic and always um, amazing, untouched by suffering. But when suffering does come, does the sure and steady anchor of my soul bring a supernatural confidence rather than a natural bitterness or fear? And can that be used by the Lord? when we genuinely enjoy the good gifts that come from our Heavenly Father, and when we live with a humble gratitude with what we've been given by Him, when the cultural winds that blow so hard don't push us off course from loving God and loving neighbor and making disciples, when that surety is witnessed by others, would that make them jealous? That abundant life that that abundant life that is complete in its vitality and joy, confidence in suffering, might that be the means that God uses to make others jealous of the faith that he has created in our hearts? Someone might notice that. Maybe you've had that experience, someone in the workplace perhaps. It's like, why are you not ruffled? What's up with that? It seems like you have a confidence that I don't have and I can't explain. Where's it coming from? And then you have the opportunity to say, well, it's not actually me, it's Christ in me. And you get to have a response for the abundant hope that you have. So the question, a searching question for each of us, would your faith in Christ make others jealous for what you have? Israel stumbling over Jesus meant that the Gentiles heard the gospel and they were brought into God's people. This is what God intended to happen. Although it's confusing to us, startling in some ways, and that God's intention uh, plays out in the way even that Paul ministers. And we can see this in the next verses through 13 through 15. God's intention is reflected in Paul's approach to ministry. So Paul ministers to the Jews through his ministry to the Gentiles. You see that in verses 13 to 15. I'll read those again. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul describes himself here as the apostle to the Gentiles. He is sent out to the nations with the gospel, but he still has very high hopes for the Jews. Hopefully we've noticed this from Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul has a soft spot, if you can say it that way, for his fellow Jews, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. In fact, he even said that he would be cut off from his own salvation, were that hypothetically possible, for the sake of the Jews. 
So even in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, which is his primary audience, he indirectly is still hoping to have that he can have uh, a positive impact to the Jews. Paul is extending the gospel to the Gentiles, but he's not trying to box the Jews out. That is in no way what's happening here. In fact, it's contrary to that. Uh, and as, as Paul lays this out here, the concept is as more Gentiles are stitched into and grafted into the people of God, well, then there might be more Jews that are more jealous, and so that there might be more saved as more Gentiles are grafted in. Look at verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. Israel's rejection, which is to say that it's their hardening in their unbelief, means the reconciliation of the world. So what do we make, what do we make of this passage here? This is a, a difficult one. Is the world reconciled to God? Is that what this means? Everyone in the world? This does not mean that every individual in the world is reconciled to God. We know that from other passages. So we have to read the Bible together. So what could this, what could this mean? Well, we have to recognize that world does not always mean every individual in the world. Indeed, Paul just used it as a synonymous term with Gentiles. So world here means Gentiles. So when we think of this passage here, what we should understand is that this means the nations. There is an inclusion of every nation without exception into the people of God. Just think about this. Under the old covenant, this is a big deal because under the old covenant, the priests would provide atonement for the nation of Israel. The, the priests of Israel didn't provide atonement for the Egyptians. It's different now. It's distinct under the new covenant. We have a great high priest who gives atonement for all the nations of the world. Well, this phrase, though, that Israel's acceptance back into the people of God would mean life from the dead is, is interesting as well. Commentators have a field day with this. Some of them think that Paul is saying that once this full number of the Jews is returned into the people of God by faith in Christ, well, then the end will come. So as soon as all of these Jews are restored back into the church, the final resurrection from the dead will occur. The end of history will come about. The end times then will be marked by the Jews finally returning back into the people of God. That's possible. But it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is this phrase about life from the dead is a spiritual reality. If you think about the, the, that picture that the prophet Ezekiel gives us, in Ezekiel chapter 36, about the valley of dry bones. Here you have the nation of Israel dead, and he speaks, and life supernaturally comes about. So it seems to me that Israel is as good as dead in their unbelief and rejection of the gospel. They are dead in their unbelief, and their restoration back into the people of God by faith would mean that they would be miraculously brought back to spiritual life. That's what I take that phrase to mean. And then in verse 16, he uses two illustrations to establish the continuity and the unity of God's people between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Two illustrations, dough, bread, and an olive tree. He just touches on this dough quickly, but I think both of them together are, are painting the same picture. At the beginning of Israel's history, God spoke promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, we refer to these three particular folks as the patriarchs. They were the fathers of the Jewish faith. It seems that in these metaphors, the patriarchs are the dough. 
that have been offered as first fruits. The patriarchs are the root of the olive tree. This is the way I'm reading these analogies. The patriarchs were holy. This is not to say that they were morally pure. They were holy in the sense that God selected them, set them apart. He devoted them for his service. He took them out of the nations and set them apart for his own purposes. That's what holy means. They're sanctified. They're set apart in that sense, devoted and dedicated to God's purpose. He made special promises to them. They were his particularly unique, special people. Okay. Now, one of the promises that God made to Abraham is that he would become a great and mighty nation. And what was part of that blessing that God gave to Abraham? Well, it was that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And I think we find what the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham is even here. As the the gospel now has gone out into the nations in a surprising way through Israel. That's probably not the way that we would have drawn up salvation playing out in real time. But we see throughout the chapters 9 through 11 that God often is subverting what our expectations might be. Uh, He doesn't do exactly what we might think. He doesn't save exactly who we might think. He doesn't do it in the ways that we might expect. But Paul seems to be pointing at a bigger point here with these illustrations. And the bigger point is that the Christian faith owes its existence to the promises that God made to those patriarchs. Christianity has deep Jewish roots. It's an understatement. And so he spends the next few lines expressing this concept more fully in the analogy of the olive tree as expressed in verses 17 through 24. So that's our second point. God cultivates his people according to his good pleasure. Verses 17 through 24. So we talked about an arborist before. God is the ultimate arborist. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to various plants. They're called the grapevine, Uh, They're called an olive tree. And we even heard one of those this morning in our call to worship text this morning from Jeremiah. And in all of those instances, God is described as the one who is cultivating those plants. He is the one who is the keeper of the vineyard. He is the one who is carefully pruning the plant, taking care of the soil, making sure that uh, that they're exposed to enough sun. In this analogy, he is taking care of this plant, cultivating it, this live organism. Any branch that we know is, that's on a tree that doesn't bear fruit is meant to be pruned off for the good of the branch, for the good of the tree, you should say. And there were times when Israel, if we're carrying this analogy through, Israel was a good, healthy olive tree. We saw in Jeremiah earlier. They had great olives fruit coming off of their branches. Well, their, their obedience of faith was great. And of course, we know that there were other times in Israel's history that it was not so great. And there were many fruitless branches that needed to be removed. Well, Paul picks up on that olive tree imagery that comes out of the Old Testament, and he applies it to God's new covenant people in the church. So this is how I am understanding Paul's metaphor here. And again, this is a metaphor. You don't want to press this too far. Anytime you press a metaphor too far, metaphor too far, uh, it can get confusing and you can try to make it say something it was not intending to say, but here's how I'm reading this. The olive tree itself represents God's one people. The roots of the olive tree are the promises that God made to the patriarchs, that is to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, 
the natural branches that belong on this tree are those ethnic Jews. That's ethnic Israel who belong to their physical children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The branches broken off are unbelieving Israel. And the wild transplant branches are the Gentiles. Now this is, some commentators have minor differences on how we're reading this here, but this is a majority view, not trying to be unique or cute here. If we think of the, co- the fruit cocktail tree earlier, we think of that analogy, well, Israel would be the lemon branches on a lemon tree. They belong there, okay? But the Gentiles would be like orange trees or orange branches that have been grafted into a lemon tree. It works, but you don't really belong there by nature. This is the concept. With that in mind, let's read through together with your Bible in front of you, verses 17 through 24 of Romans 11. Again, look at your copy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Well, then you'll say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God had not, did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So I think Paul's making a couple of points here with this metaphor. The first is that he's showing the continuity of God's people from the time of Abraham, when Abraham was called and he was set apart, to the beginning of the church. And indeed, even to today, this very morning, there is a continuity of God's people. Ours is a deeply rooted faith. The roots of the Christian faith are set firmly in the soil of the dusty, arid, Middle Eastern desert, thousands of years before Christ was even born. So when we read the history of Israel, we are reading our own family history. With all of its glories with all of its ugliness, the Christianity would not make any sense without the Old Testament. It just wouldn't. Uh, And that's why we find Paul over and over again establishing his Christian doctrines in the Old Testament. It's not inconsistent. He is establishing his Christian doctrine over and over again in the promises that were made to Israel. Now, if you're a Jeopardy fan, you might have seen last week that one night, on a final Jeopardy question, was this. Paul's letter to them is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. Now, if you had to answer that, and you can go ahead and answer out loud, what, what letter do you think it would be? I'm hearing a lot of Romans, and I think that's the right answer. The troubling thing was that on, on this episode of Jeopardy, they said it was Hebrews. And I think that's wrong for a couple of reasons. But... I mean, we, first of all, we don't know that Paul wrote Hebrews. 
And second, even if he did, there's way more in Romans. So uh, Jeopardy gets it wrong sometimes too. The point is, though, I agree with you guys. I think the point, though, the reason that this is even a difficult question is that the New Testament is filled with Old Testament quotations and allusions and images across the board. Many of those books could be rightly seen as the one who has the most because it's so consistent throughout there. The book of Revelation would be even more confusing and challenging than it already is without some knowledge of the Old Testament and the imagery that's there. And listen, even, even the cross of Christ would be more difficult to understand without the Old Testament. A lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who makes a new covenant in his blood. That would be extra confusing without understanding the first covenant and the sacrificial system that came before it. In short, Paul says that it is ignorant and prideful for anyone to try to unhitch the New Testament from the Old. It should not be done. It cannot be done. The same unchanging God of the Old Testament is the same unchanging God of the New. God has one people whose roots date back to the dusty soil of the ancient Near East. A second point Paul, I think, is making with this metaphor is related to the issue of pride. It comes up a couple of times here. Notice in verse 18, do not be arrogant. And then again in verse 20, do not become proud. His warning here is to Gentile Christians, okay? These Gentile Christians are looking down, as we discussed earlier, looking down on the Jewish Christians. And essentially Paul's saying, look, you guys are playing on Israel's turf. You should not be so conceited. You were grafted into God's people by his grace. You did not earn your way into this. You are not the home team here. You are a guest. And it's hard not to see how pride might have started to creep in, though to the hearts and minds of the Gentile Christians there. If they see that some of Israel was hardened so the Gentiles might be joined to the people of God, they might get a little puffed up, might be a little conceited. And so in order to relieve the pressure of their inflated egos, Paul uses the pen of God's sovereign grace to poke it and deflate some of that pressure out a little bit. Verse 20 Israel was broken off because of their unbelief. Uh, more liter literally, that would be their lack of faith. They don't have faith, but you stand fast through faith. So the distinction between the two of them is, is just faith. And we know from what Paul has already said here and elsewhere that that faith is not something that can cause pride in us. How could you be proud of having faith in Christ over others who don't have faith in Christ? If you rightly understand that faith is part of that package of salvation that he gives to you freely, sovereignly. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It's our sermon text uh, on the last week of October. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here's the equalizer between these different ethnicities within this one church. The solution to our pride and arrogance over one another is to recognize that our faith is a gift. A gift we don't deserve. He says, Gentile Christians, the history of God's people didn't start with you. And your sovereign invitation into the people of God came to you from sovereign grace. You didn't earn it. Have some humility. In fact, he even goes so far as to say that instead of being proud 
they ought rather to fear. Did you notice that? That might strike you as odd at first because we're told over and over again in Scripture not to fear. It's one of the most common commands, fear not. And yet here we see that fear is a solution to pride. Well, it might help to recognize that there's two kinds of fear in Scripture. Uh, Philip Melanchthon was one of Martin Luther's friends during the Reformation, and he helpfully pointed out this, this concept from Scripture that there are two different kinds of fear. There's a sinful fear, and then there's a, a holy fear, a good fear. There's a sinful, shameful fear that makes us want to run and hide from God, a fear of God as judge, but then there's a fear of God as father, a holy terror, an unholy terror is not what we're thinking of in this passage. When he tells you to fear God, it's not an unholy terror thinking of only as God as judge. It's this other kind of fear that is not sinful. It is a fear of respect, a fear of awe based in love and in trust. There's a fear that leads to hate and sin and a fear that leads to love and obedience. And if you're in the Exodus class this morning, you might have seen this passage earlier. Uh, you know that Ryan covered a passage where Israel now is terrified, standing at the, the base of Mount Sinai. They see the flashing lightning, they hear the peals of thunder, they see the smoke, they see the light. They've just, Moses has just received the Ten Commandments, and Israel is standing far off. I don't think I want to get anywhere near that. They're terrified. And listen to what Moses says to the people in one sentence. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him, that's God, may be before you, that you may not sin. So you hear this is a difficult concept of the fear of God. Not a, not a trembling, unholy fear, but a reverential, fatherly fear, a respect that leads to obedience, out of love, out of devotion. Noting both the kindness of God in giving the law and instructing his people on what leads to life, helping them recognize the corruption that sin brings into their lives and into their communities. And note, too, the severity of God and his perfect holiness playing out there at the foot of Mount Sinai. It seems that there is a, a fear of God that's healthy, a fear of God that it drives out all of the unhealthy fears that we constantly experience. Our anxieties might be due to the fact that we don't rightly fear God as we ought and instead fear everyone and everything else. So the solution to thinking that you're entitled to God's grace is to become overwhelmed with love for God as God, noting both his kindness and his severity. A proper understanding of God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture is one who is severe and kind. We might be prone to affirm one or the other. They're both true. A proper understanding of God requires us to see the unity of his severity and his kindness, not put them at odds against one another. That's how we've become devoted to him as our good heavenly father, is to see his unity of goodness and severity. This is a healthy fear that ought to bring watchfulness, vigilance to our lives, and it should warn us and push us away from pride. So if you're a non-Christian here who's confused about that concept, and you'd like to think more about what it means to fear God rightly, as a father, I'd be glad to talk to you after the service. Two reasons not to be an arrogant believer. First, your salvation is nourished and sustained by God's promises. I think this is what we see in verses 17 and 18. 
There ought to be a great, strong level of humility for Gentile Christians, which is us. We are nourished and sustained by God's promises that date back to ancient Israel. And then second, note that the faith that saves you is a gift. The distinction between unbelievers and believers is faith. That faith is a gift. There's no room for boasting in the people of God. There is unity. There is equilibrium across the people of God in that sense. The solution then to being an arrogant believer is to fear God and to give thanks to him. To fear God and to give thanks to him. Recognizing that but for the grace of God, we too would reject Christ. So the concept here, there's a unity of God's people, multiple ethnicities by design stitched in together. There is no room for ethnic superiority in any sense in Christ's church. Uh, There are multiple ethnicities by design, and that's the way it ought to be. It's not easy, but we need to have humility in these things, preferring one another and and uh, what's best for others over what we think is best for us. God always intended to bring Gentiles into his people, but he never intended to replace his people. And so by bringing in Gentile nations, he is provoking Israel to jealousy so that they might return to him. And we'll talk more about the future of Israel next week, at the end of Romans 11, as we're nearing the end of this portion of Romans. By their faith, Gentiles benefit from the promises that were made to Abraham. By their lack of faith, some of Israel are cut off from God's promised blessings. But all those who are grafted into God's people, who are united to Christ by faith, are humble debtors to mercy alone. In Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is Ephesians 2. He has created in himself one new man in place of the two. In his church, God sovereignly creates a united people in sometimes surprising ways. The recognition that we're all guests on uh, turf that does not belong to us ought to be humbling to each of us to keep us from becoming prideful or arrogant towards others within the church or indeed even those who are unbelievers. There's no room for arrogance or pride. If you are a Christian, you have been grafted into a long line of faithful men and women who have been gifted with grace. And it's up to us to fearfully cultivate our own sense of humility and wonder at being joined into the one holy, universal people of God. Glory to God alone. Let's pray.